If you have your Bibles, let's open them up. Second uh, Samuel chapter six. Second uh, Samuel is in the Old Testament, uh, about I don't know third of the way through it. Uh, you'll find it uh, if you find First Samuel. Just keep going right. Uh, and so, as you're turning there, let me let me kind of get us all on the same page. Uh, we we've been looking at what it takes to be a worship filled church. And, and really what we've said as we try to simplify it uh, is that the only way uh, we can be a worshipful church is that we be worshipful people. Uh, that, that how private worship builds anticipation for public worship. And, and as we spend intimate time with God during the week, our meeting together to lift high praises, uh, and to dive into the Word makes this a much sweeter experience. And, and we also, in this process, is we, we've tried to narrow down a definition of the word worship, lest we all have our own differing definitions. Uh, and so for our time together, we've simply defined worship as the response, our response to what we value most. Now, that means we can place our worship in places that are fitting and unfitting. And so, so everybody has an altar. Every altar has a throne. And it's our great prayer and it's our great desire here at Merge to help you see the greatness of God. Uh, and, and that you would be able to see His intimate involvement in your life so that you can respond to Him in proper ways. And uh, since God is our greatest source of joy and peace and strength, our response to Him should be with our very best offerings, our very best, uh, really, our desperation should always be pointed towards His direction. And, and this is why uh, I was so thankful for the words uh, that James shared with you guys last week. Uh, Missy and I uh, were able to get out of town for a little bit and we came back and all the schools shut down because of it. Um, but, but this is why I was thankful for what James brought to the table last week as he helped us see, really, see further the extent of what true worship is. So, so how we respond to God with worship, it's a full context for it, where, um, where we respond as we just sang with everything. That we would respond to God with all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our uh, strength, all of our heart, that, that there really is no casual response to God's greatness uh, that is considered proper. And so, so where I want us to go these next few weeks as we've tried to lay some groundwork for what worship is, I, I, wanna, I want us to look these next couple weeks at some circumstances uh, where worship is a proper response. Uh, and, and God willing... Uh, these next few weeks will be very helpful for us. For instance, this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to explore when celebration is the response of our hearts when we see and when we feel the greatness of God. And so what I hope is over these next few weeks uh, is that worship, we will see, is always an option on the table regardless of the circumstances of our lives. Uh, and so let's, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, we come to you. And we thank you so very much for giving us breath to sing today. And what I pray this morning as we open your word, that, that it would come to life, that we would be able to see through the response of David 
how we can bring you our very best celebratory moments. How we can worship you in the highest of highs. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. I don't know if you've read much of the life of King David. Uh, I don't know if perhaps your only interaction with him was he's the guy who threw a rock at a giant and then cut off his head. Um, but but I, I love the life of King David because it's, it's rich in adventure and it's rich in trouble. That, that he's a beautiful picture of a man who's conflicted at times and yet is used by God in incredible ways. That he's, he's described uh, in, in so many inspiring and, and almost horrible ways ways that that it says throughout the word that he was a a warrior and he was a poet and he was a leader and he was a king and he was an adulterer and he was a murderer but through it all there was a description by god that never changed god never removed it no matter the circumstance of david's life and he comes in from the very beginning and he says david is a man after my own heart. And so our time this morning in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6 uh, is going to seem to hit a climax in chapter in verse 13. Okay? Uh, you can get there then. Uh, Alan, do I have verse 13? Did I give you that? All right, let's look it up. Verse 13 simply says this. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now, one of the key reasons why we don't just pick out one verse for the day is that that's not very inspiring. Though it is, as we will see, to be the climax of something incredibly worship-filled. Okay? So, so in order for us to fully appreciate verse 13, we need to unpack a little of the history of the nation with the ark and what brought David and Israel to this point. Okay? So, so the Ark of the Covenant, right, to many of us, just made for a good Indiana Jones movie, right? Um, but, but for the Israelites, it was considered to be their most sacred object. In fact, uh, it, was, it was a wooden box encased in gold, and it held a few items in it. Most particularly, I think most famous, uh, is the actual Ten Commandments that God gave uh, Moses and Moses brought down for the nation of Israel and God was very particular you can go through this God was very particular about how Israel was to treat the ark in fact uh, he, he told them that the Levites were to carry it on these sliding poles uh, into these ringlets by sliding these poles into these ringlets that he instructed them to add now I want you to remember that very important part uh, because in about six hours, when I'm done telling you the story of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, we're going to get to that. It's going to get important for you. All right? So, so the Ark is held in the tabernacle in a room called the Most Holy of Holies, right? And so as we've been walking through Hebrews, uh, we talk about the high priest. Remember, the high priest goes into this special room to make an offering on behalf of, uh, on behalf of the sins of the nation of Israel. And so uh, this Ark is in that room. It became this visible sign of not only the presence, but the power of God. This wasn't an item that you'd find just sitting in a garage cell, and it was much more than just the mascot uh, for God's people. And to appreciate Second Samuel 6, we have to go back. I'm going to tell you a story that begins in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Uh, and in fact, it's where one of the darkest seasons 
in the Israelites' life begins. This is, this is before Israel had a king. Their first king is Saul, but this is before. And before there was a king, the land was kind of ruled by judges. Uh, and, and so at this particular time, Israel is being led by a judge and a high priest named Eli. And he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, who was on summer vacation until school came along just to end it. Um, and so, no, not the same ones. That's Phineas and Ferb, not Hophni and Phineas. okay? So, so he has two sons, Hophni, Hophni and Phineas, and the scripture describes them simply as wicked men. It says they were evil men, and there was this great warning to Eli about, hey, you need to get your family under control, or else not only is it going to lead you and your family to their demise, but it will lead the entire nation. And so Israel, at the time, has one main enemy in the day, the the Philistines. Uh, and so, uh, and then they find themselves in 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, drawn to battle lines, and a fight breaks out. Israel loses. 4,000 men die. And as the Israelites went back to their camp, they do exactly what we do when life doesn't turn out the way we expected it. They start to look around and they say, well, wh- why did God allow this? Why did God let this happen to us. And so they respond by doing something really interesting. They, they acknowledge that God, for some reason, allowed this, but instead of trying to seek why or, or what they can learn from this defeat, they decide to create their own momentum. Uh, and so they take the ark from Shiloh to the battlefield, almost as if they were forcing the Lord to do their will. And, and so they parade the ark to the battle like it was a lucky charm. And, and the battle ensues and the Israelites are routed and something horrible happens. The Philistines say, hey, we're going to take the ark. And so they pick it up and they take it away. And a runner from the battle makes his way to Shiloh where Eli is sitting. He's found sitting on a chair by the city gates. And, and the runner tells Eli three things. He says, the battle is lost, your sons are dead, and the ark is gone. And the news of this causes Eli to fall backwards off of his chair and he breaks his neck because it says he was old and heavy. No joke. That's what the Bible says about him. Okay? So the news further spreads to Phineas' wife. Phineas is pregnant at the time uh, and and the news comes to her that the ark was taken, her father-in-law and her husband are dead, and she, the news of this causes her to go into labor. Now, as she is dying from giving birth, uh, the nurse looks at her and says, hey, you're having a, you had a son, to which she says she doesn't respond at all. And eventually she names him. And the name that she gives him is a portrait for the darkness of the day. She gives him the name Ichabod. And the name simply means this, the glory of God has departed. Then the scene fades to black with that announcement. Now, the next scene opens up. God, however, cannot, he will not let the enemy even think that they've defeated him. And so, so the Philistines take the ark, they, they run the ark into their temple where they worship an idol named Dagon. Okay? And they sit them there, they go out, they're like high-fiving, you know, all this stuff. And, and then they wake up the next morning, go into the temple, and they find that their idol, Dagon, has fallen before the ark face down. 
And they say, that's weird. And so they prop them back up. The next day they go into the temple. And they, not only has Dagon fallen face down, but now his hands and his head have broken off of the statue. And what happens next for them uh, is, uh, really for the next seven months, God just messes with the Philistines. He causes plagues, he causes disturbances, and wherever the ark was taken, there was trouble for the Philistines. Until this specific point where they say, we've had enough. Clearly their God is messing with us. And so what they do is they they put the ark on a cart with two brand new oxen, right? And then they load up a peace offering, and no joke, they say, go anywhere but here says that the, the Philistine men walked as far as the border and just kind of let this cow, these cows take this ark anywhere but their land. And gratefully, they were done with it. And so the ark ends up in this Israelite town of Beth Shemesh. Say that with me. Beth Shemesh. You sound smart, don't you, when you say it? All right. So, so where the Israelites celebrated the return of the ark. However... In this moment, there were some men thinking more of themselves than they really should have. Uh, they decide they're going to look inside the ark, which was a huge no-no. Uh, and God strikes 70 of them dead for it. Again, there are very special rules and requirements for the ark. And uh, as we're going to find out, God is not playing games with how you treat his property. And so the people of Beth Shemesh called their neighboring town of Kiriath-Jerim. That's the only time I'm saying that word today. Um, and they just say this. Hey, come get the ark from us. It's too much. It's too much. And, and so they do. And they set it in the house of a man named Abinadab, whose son, uh, Eleazar, was consecrated to guard the ark, uh, where it seems to stay through the entire reign of King Saul. It just stays in this guy's house all the way to where we find ourselves this morning in Second Samuel chapter 6. Alan, you ready to go? We got, we got some verses here. Let's start reading in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, okay? And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bel Judah uh, to the bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned in the cherubim. Now, okay, if you want to parallel this story in 2 Samuel chapter 6, all you need to do is go to 1 Chronicles chapters 13, 15, and 16. And that kind of parallels and lends a little bit additional insight into David's motivation of why he wants to get the ark back. And what we find is that David is establishing his desire to put God first in the nation. Uh, in fact, the ark had been greatly neglected, and because of this, uh, the nation is very spiritually malnourished. Uh, they have no awareness of how great God is in this moment. Uh, and so bringing this ark back would, would bring God, in essence, back into the nation's conscious. And, and so he's making Jerusalem the nation's center of worship. This is the city of David. And so David and a small band of 30,000 men head over to the house to the house of a guy named Abinadab. And so to give you an idea of what that would look like, imagine uh, King David uh, is walking with his 30,000 men down the street of your neighborhood, right? And there's this thunderous roar 
uh, and because none of us want to open our front doors, we're all hiding underneath the window, right? And you hear a whole bunch of people, shh, 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 he's about to knock on the door, right? And all of a sudden there's a knock, and then there's a guy, and he's like, hey, I'm Dave, um, can we get the ark back from you? And so this is where we follow along. Verse 3, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Okay, here's what I want, I'd like you if, you, if you're not a, um, afraid to underline your Bible. Um, they carried the ark of God on a new cart, underline those words, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart uh, with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, and David... And all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets. Now, you know it's a legit party when someone busts out the castanet, right? And cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. Now, watch, watch what happens in verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now this seems like a very strange thing that just happened because he seems to be wanting to do a good thing and holding up the ark. The, the ox stumbles, the ark is going to fall, he puts his hands out there. All of us say, well, I don't know what the problem with that is, except for this. I heard a guy talk about this one time, and I thought it was so astute. That, that in that moment, Uzzah believed that his hands, his sinful hands were less dirty than the ground of the floor. And so, so in his error, he decides to go against what God says to do. And it makes me think about all the times I've, I've tried to... Well, uh, let's, let's go back here. Like I said before, God has these very important instructions about how the ark is to be carried from place to place. And had David done some of his homework, this could have been very easily avoided. Very easily avoided. Like I said, God has these instructions about how the ark is to be carried. And David, not doing his homework, decides to put the ark on what? Anybody remember? On a what? Cart. There we go. You were like, conf not confident. Then you are very confident when I was like, you. Next time, though, when you're wrong, I'm going to be like, you. And you're going to be like, I'm like, you're wrong. Um, but they put the ark on this cart uh, because, I mean, after all, wouldn't that be faster? Right? And, and though it may be faster, it was not the way God instructed. And, and that causes me to think through my life of, of how many times I try to take shortcuts in my life only to realize that there are reasons why God tells us to not cut corners, especially when it comes to our relationship with Him, that He's more concerned with how we get to our destination rather than how fast we get to our destination. Always. And so the details matter to God, and David avoiding them sadly cost us his life. And, and I think coming close to God's will is not the same as doing God's will. That we have to come to grips with the facts that there are reasons He tells us to do things certain ways. There's a reason why He tells us uh, how to handle certain appetites, uh, how to handle our finances, our relationships, depending on His provision, growing 
in patience, not living in fear, being active in the adventures of His size. There's a reason He says, I want us to walk together in that. He never says, I want us to sprint through this. Verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now, let's just think for a moment. How would you like to be Obed here? That that somebody walks up and they say, Hey, um, we want you to take this ark. Uh, Don't touch it. You won't like what happens when you touch it. And they bring it in to the barn. And they all slowly creep out as if it's a bomb. Right? And as soon as they get out the door, they're gone. Like, we don't want to deal with this any longer. And you look at it, and it's like that creepy part in the movie when silence is the scariest thing in your whole life. And it stays there. And what we find out is it doesn't blow up. A monster doesn't crawl out of it. And for for three months, we read that Obed-Edom's house is just incredibly blessed. Coincidence? I think not. Verse 12. And it was told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And now here's where I'd like you to underline these next couple words. And when those who bore the ark, underline that, of the Lord had gone, underline these words, had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And then verse 14, underline this, this, this sentence, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing the linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the horn. So, so word gets back that great things are happening at Obed's house and, and David decides it's time for a round two. But did you catch the difference in what they did? Verse 13 gives us... Is anybody, anybody brave enough to guess it? Go ahead, Finley. They didn't move it on a cart. What did they do? What does it say they did? Very good. They bore the ark. So what does that mean? It means they picked it up on these poles, these ringlets. Now, now, how would you like to have experienced that moment? First of all, David does it right. He says, hey guys, we've got to get the poles. We've got to get the Levites. And instead of doing this fast, we're going to do this God's way. And so they pick it up. And they take the first step, and boy, that had to be tense, right? Like, okay, it's good. Then they take step two, still alive, all right? They take step three. Did y'all hear something? Step four, are those rain clouds? What's about to happen? Step five, 
okay, maybe, maybe we're going to survive this. Step six, done. Put it down. Let's celebrate. We made it six steps. Now, I have, very sh- I have shorter legs, right? Some of you have longer legs, but can we agree that six steps is nothing? Like, that is no distance. If you're taking it from Obed's house to Jerusalem, to the city of David, that's no, you're nowhere really closer to your destination. And it says after six steps, they say, God is so good that it's time to celebrate. That it's time to rejoice that he allowed us to take six steps. And so David and the nation take six steps and they are so grateful that God would allow those steps that that they stop and they celebrate and worship. And the question that just been ringing in my heart is when was the last time you stopped and celebrated that God allows you to take six steps? When was the last time, for that matter, when was the last time you recognized that the last breath that you took was a gift from God? Some, some commentators translate these verses to mean that every six steps they stopped and they celebrated. Some say they just stopped here. My guess is that they stopped there and they did the offering and they started the celebration. And it says as David danced with all of his might, they continued that party all the way to Jerusalem. And it was easy for them to do it because they were walking with God as they went. Either way, it's clear the victory was not achieved by David or the Levites or the nation, that that this is one of those moments that everybody looks and says, look what God is letting us do. Look what God is doing around us. Look what God is doing through us. It is by His grace that we are allowed our six steps, our last six steps, our current steps, our next steps. Verse 16. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, and Michael, the daughter of Saul... Okay, that's important. Just go ahead and circle circle that. Uh, The daughter of Saul looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. More on that in a moment. Verse 17. And they brought the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. So he fed them. He said, hey, we've been partying hard. Let's eat. And it says they each departed to his own house. This is a, it's a holy party. And, and, and my, my prayer is that we would be able to see this in very real ways. It would be as if the entire city of Azel got together and in one voice made much of God. That a revival just breaks out and everybody celebrates. What a, what a scene, what a prayer for us to be praying here. That God would allow us to see him move and our celebration would be so noticeable that the entire city joins in. Verse 20. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, 
came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, if you're picking up a little sarcasm in her voice, it's only because she's landed on pretty thick. All right? Now, Michael is David's wife, uh, but Samuel chooses to describe her as Saul's daughter, indicating that spiritually and, and emotionally they are not on the same page. That they are not. And so, so David walks in and says, Honey, I'm home. And then he gets a very sarcastic, mean-spirited welcome. Uh, but, but here's what I want you to see. I want you to pay attention to where David's heart and his mind is in this moment. Verse 21. And David said to Michael, and you can underline these words, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel to the people of the Lord. Then he says this, And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will celebrate. I will make myself yet more contemptible. Uh, when, when I was learning uh, this scene, uh, I was, it was when I was reading the NIV translation, and I love the word that they use there. He says, I will become even more undignified than this. I will be abased in your eyes, but the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And that's all we're reading today, because that seems like a really fun place to end, right? And here's, here's what I love. I love David's response because he understands what so many of us refuse to see when it comes to life with God. He is so excited about what God has allowed that he doesn't care at all what other people think. At all. He says, I'll worship because it's not about you, it's about him. He says, I will dance because it's not about what you, how well you think I can dance. It's, I will be even more undignified. I, I will break it out and it will be embarrassing to everybody that sees me. But I know in my heart of hearts, it's between me and celebrating what God has done in my life. And I don't care what the rest of the world thinks about it. And what David is experiencing is freedom in almost every sense of the word. He had walked according to God's leading and he's experiencing the joy that comes in not turning to the left or to the right. He says, my heart is his. It's a mountain worth climbing because, because true freedom is found under the authority of God since all other illusions of freedom are actually traps that lead to sin and death. And, and we spend, guys, we spend far too much time concerned about what other people will think about us. And we spend far too little time thinking about how God would view our response to Him. So let me very quickly, very quickly, okay? I'm not joking, very quickly, give you three things to consider here. As we talk about celebration as a response to worship, number one, celebration is a response of a heart happy in God for what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do. Celebration is a response of a heart happy in God for what He has done, what He is doing, what He will do. And so the question I just want to leave linger here is are you happy in God? And if not, then that's worth exploring. 
And if you are, then where is our celebration? I'm not saying you don't have it. I'm just asking, where is it? Number two, when the matter is between you and God, that's what David's teaching us, when the matter is between you and God, all that matters is you and God. So the question that I'd like to leave us lingering here is, do you put too much stock in what those around you will think? So I'm going to start wrapping this up. Number three. This is what I love about this whole scene. That every six steps is a gift from God. Every six steps. We take that for granted. We all woke up this morning and we said, I'm going to have a thousand steps. Some of us have uh, counters on our wrists and we get to the end of the day and we're like, oh, 25,000 steps. Eat that, everybody else, right? Every six steps is a gift from God. So step in His direction. Step in His direction. And now, I guess the question here is, is when was the last time you took six steps in life with God? When was the last time that you took six steps in life with God? Now, here's the thing. I want to make sure I, I explain this in a way that's helpful because there are times and we're going to explore this hope and God willing the next couple weeks is that we're talking about a specific circumstance in life that we respond to in worship today is simply celebration we are happy in God and now here's the thing there are a lot of ways to fake that there are a lot of actions that we can do, especially uh, outwardly, that make it look like we're happy with God. And that's not in what I'm intending to promote at all. Because worship is our response to what we value most. And if who we value most is God, then our celebration of Him shouldn't have to be mustered as we think of what He has done, as we think about what He is doing, as we think about what He will do, that you and I, if we are found in Jesus, we are secured, we are brought into the family, every six steps that He gives us should be cause for celebration. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Please stand with me. So we wrap up. I want to make a couple things available. If you need prayer this morning, we want to pray with you. Uh, Mac and, and Mark will be over on this side of the room. Maybe you're fighting for joy. Maybe you're fighting. You say, I don't, I don't have a cause for celebration. I, I think you do, but I'm not going to force that down your throat. Maybe you just need prayer this morning. Maybe you've never asked Jesus into your heart and today's your day. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you that you love us, that you care for us, that you walk with us. What we pray is that you would take us this week into just identifying those six steps that you were taking at a time with you. 
that we'd be able to celebrate what you were doing around us and through us and in us. That we would have eyes this week to see as some of us are laying low at the house. That we'd be able to see your goodness. That we'd be able to redeem what we would consider wasted time by spending it with you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.